0: Some years ago, about five or ten years ago, there was a, um, a phrase that people would use whenever they would discuss some type of uh, deviant lifestyle. They would always add these words to the end of their discussion about this lifestyle. They would say, not that there's anything wrong with that. And I always found that phrase to be interesting because people would talk about some misbehavior. Not that there's anything wrong with that, they would add. And I found it interesting because to me it proved that there actually was something wrong with that. It, in other words, the law of God is written in people's hearts and we know what's right and we know what's wrong. And people feel justified, they feel like they have to justify their statements and saying, well, not that there's anything wrong with that. You would never say that kind of phrase about something good that you did, would you? Oh, at the store the other day, I helped an elderly lady load her groceries in the car. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Or the other day, uh, you know, I I was cheering for my kids at the ball game. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's ridiculous for us to tag that phrase on at the end of something that we know in our heart is good and moral. But five or ten years ago, people were saying that all the time about all kinds of behavior. Um, But now, our society has regressed to the point that we don't even say that about bad behavior. Our society now celebrates depravity. And it's like a game of Uh, uh, one-upsmanship. Whatever you do that's more depraved than the next person, well, the more we're going to cheer you on. You know, and it's almost like we're asking the question in our society, what unethical uh, behavior must we prove that we believe to be okay so much that we celebrate it? And so, you know, if you're having premarital sexual relations with someone, well, society's going to celebrate that, but even more so if you're living together before marriage. Oh, if you're homosexual, we're going to really celebrate that, and now something has trumped that even. If you decide to change your gender from one to the other, that's the penultimate. I mean, there's just nothing greater to our society than that type of deviant behavior. Well, This worldview, this idea, this mode of thinking is not so much the worldview of hedonism, although there's a lot of that going on, but I think it's really the worldview of pragmatism. Pragmatism, it's the idea that, hey, whatever works for you is okay. It doesn't matter if it hurts someone, it doesn't matter if it damages your soul, if it destines your eternity for a place that you don't want to go, it doesn't matter Uh, If something is right, it doesn't matter if something is wrong. We don't even know what's right and wrong anymore people would say. If it works for you, fine. And nobody wants to tell someone else what they're doing is wrong. In fact, the only way in our society where you are wrong is if you tell somebody they're wrong. That is the unforgivable sin, to have, an, have a, a mind of discernment, to have a mind even of judgment, a mind that would critique another person's lifestyle or choices that has, in fact, in many times become a crime. It's become an actual, literal crime in some cases to have an opinion that someone else might be wrong. Our government is now penalizing business owners who want to take a stand for morality based on their faith. And so they're being penalized because they think something is right and something else is wrong. And if it's not an actual crime, then the shame police will be out in full measure to make sure that you are harmed if you have any kind of uh, aberrant theology that doesn't accept everything well we should probably expect the world to act like this they're the world that don't know the lord but the problem is that many leaders of many churches have gotten in on the act and i want to take you down the rabbit hole just a little bit um, and describe for you some of the problems of how this idea of pragmatism has crept into the church. the church growth industry, and you might not even know that the church growth is an industry, but it really is. It's a major industry. Now, I want you to understand it's not the, the cause of pragmatism in churches, but the church growth industry is uh, very much susceptible to this idea of pragmatism. And what I mean by that is there, if there's one verse in the church growth industry that sort of encapsulates the entire thought process— it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22. And it reads, in part, I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all, by all means save some. And what this has come to mean is that uh, I, if someone might be offended by me saying that something's right or wrong, well, I, I just won't say that anything's right or wrong. But that's not what Paul meant when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 9, if you read that chapter in this context, he's talking about Christian liberties. What it meant to him was that if doing a certain action might, might hinder someone from receiving Christ, such as if eating meat that's sacrificed to an idol might hinder someone from coming to Christ or might hinder my brother in Christ from having good, a good relationship with Christ, then I won't eat meat. Or if receiving a salary from preaching the gospel, which Paul indicated he had the right to do. But if receiving a salary would hinder someone from receiving Christ or would hinder the unity of the church, then he just won't receive a salary from it. He'll be a tent maker. In other words, this idea of me becoming all things to all men, that by all means I might save some, means that I'm willing to lay aside my rights for the benefit of my brother, for the benefit of other people. That's what that means. And so Paul was willing to sacrifice his own liberties in order to help people hear the good news about Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, some, not all, but some in the church growth industry have taken this verse to mean one of three potential things. Number one, that we should hide who we really are so that we can sort of trick people into liking us and then maybe they'll get saved. That's just sort of not, not tell people who we really are. and You know, maybe they'll think we're a coffee club or maybe they'll, they'll think we're something else. And, and, and maybe later, after they get to know us, we can sort of ease them into the kingdom of God instead of just being forthright with them. Or it means this it's become to mean this, that we should not talk about unpopular doctrines. This is very much uh, what it means to many people today. Many preachers today will avoid the topic of hell, avoid judgment, never talk about sin. I could name these preachers, so could you. Or, worse yet, this phrase has come to mean by some who want to grow themselves large churches, that they even change their doctrine. Not that they just don't talk about unpopular doctrines, but that they change their doctrine. Well, if nobody wants me to talk about hell, maybe I should re-examine that. Maybe hell doesn't even exist anymore, is the idea. And so, out of the church growth industry has come a, a sort of a new movement. It's called the Emerging Church Movement, or the Emergent Church movement, and uh, this is a really, I think, a really dangerous movement. I'm going to read you a statement of faith by a group called the Emergent Village. Brian McLaren and some others are in this group, and this is their statement of faith. See how hard this statement of faith is to believe in. Okay, are you ready? You might need some some galoshes or something like that. There's a lot of mush here. Here we go. We believe in God. Beauty, future, and hope. But you won't find a traditional statement of faith here that it reads. We don't have a problem with faith, but with statements. Whereas statements of faith and doctrine have a tendency to stifle friendships, we hope to further conversation and action around the things of God. What does that mean? I read it and I don't know what it means. I've got a doctorate. It means almost nothing. And, what it, and that really encapsulates the emerging church movement. In other words, emerging church leaders are hesitant to ever talk about doctrine. They just want to have conversations. They want to ask questions. That Whatever you say you believe, they'll either affirm it or at least they won't tell you that you're wrong. No one is ever wrong. Everyone is learning. Everyone's in a process of discovery. And it's so mushy that they never take any kind of firm statement or firm ground on the doctrines of the faith, on the doctrine of God, on the doctrine of the Trinity, on the doctrine of Jesus, on the doctrine of the cross, the atonement, on the doctrine of hell, on the doctrine of future things, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, on the doctrine of how a person is saved, on the doctrine of the church. Everything is up in the air for the purpose of having conversations. It's almost impossible to find out what any of these people believe. This is a very subtle and dangerous deception. It's pragmatism, actualized in theology. Whatever works for you, run with it. Because in the end, they say, it all leads to God. Jesus himself had a much more closed-minded view of what leads to God. You know, no one practices or personifies this kind of pragmatic theology movement more than a man named Rob Bell. Now, if you've ever listened or read uh, to anything that he has produced, it's almost impossible to determine what he actually believes. He just wants to converse and ask questions without ever stating anything authoritatively. And it finally led me at one time to post this on Facebook. If a certainty occurred, and only Rob Bell was there to experience it, would anyone know for sure? The question is, who knows? When you finally dig through all the fluff, through his books like Love Wins, where he takes 200 pages or so to question the very existence of hell, And you dig through all that fluff, you discover that Rob Bell does not believe in an eternal hell. But what he does believe, as an aside, is that God has blessed things like homosexual marriage. This is where open-ended questions with no firm foundation, no no firm foundation in Scripture especially, will take you. Where anybody could be right, who's to say? who's right and who's wrong. And that's really the heart of the issue. The authority for pragmatists is not the Bible, but themselves, and whatever their goal is. You know, when a person has this idea of whatever works, they have this attitude. Whatever works for you, right? When a person has this, it leads them down a very dangerous line of thought. There was a guy in Acts chapter 8 who had this idea. Whatever works. And we run across this uh, strange story of a sorcerer named Simon in Acts chapter 8. We're going to read about him and uh, we'll read very briefly T- touch on this very quickly. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. This is monumental because up until Acts chapter 8, all of the people who got saved were Jews. They were Jews that were visiting Jerusalem, celebrating the Jewish Pentecost. They were Jews in the surrounding area of Judea. But what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem... And in Judea, and in Samaria, where some uh, genetically half-Jews live, and to the uttermost parts of the world, where all the Gentiles live. In other words, Jesus' plan from the very beginning was for his message to go go out beyond just the Jewish family. And so now in Acts chapter 8, Philip takes the gospel to... Samaria. And so the Samaritans had a very distinctive understanding of the Messiah. They believed, now the Samaritans were different than, than the uh, Jews who lived in Judea and Jerusalem. The Samaritans believed that, that well, f- for example, their only scriptures were the first five books of the, of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And they believed that the one who was coming, the Messiah who had come and saved them, would be just like Moses and specifically Moses in chapter 18 where Moses talks about the prophet who will come and the prophet who will come he'll never get a prophecy wrong and so there's a great prophet coming and so this is what the Samaritans in Jesus day and thereafter were looking for they were looking for one who is coming who would be just like Moses and so here you have Philip going into the city of Samaria to a crowd that is hungry for spiritual food. They're looking for the Messiah. The question is, what message will they be fed? And so we read in verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was producing. He had the crowd captured honestly they would have listened to anyone and we know this because they were listening to this guy simon the sorcerer as well but he had their attention he had this crowd in his grasp and not only did he preach the gospel but something accompanied the gospel it was signs luke the author of acts he calls them signs why because a miracle is not an end in itself, but it is something that points to something else. You see a sign out on the road that says 55 miles per hour. It tells you about a law that stands behind the signs. You see a sign that says, welcome to in. It tells you you're, walk, you're going into a city. You're going into a reality a reality that's beyond the sign itself. These miracles were not ends in themselves, but they were signs that pointed to the reality that Jesus was the one behind it. Jesus was the one changing these people's lives. And so they noticed all of these signs which he was performing. Verse 7. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. I mean, this city was being uh, uh, brought into an incredible turmoil and an understanding that this is something new that's going on. And then we're introduced to this guy, Simon, in verse 9. By the way, it's not Simon Peter. It's a different Simon. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. This guy, Simon, he was hungry himself. He was hungry for power. He was hungry for money. He wanted people to believe that he had the power of God. And he was actually using God's name to con people and to make a profit. Verse 10 says, And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him. This man is what is called the great power of God. So he brought up a big following of himself as he pulled these illusions and these magic tricks. In verse 11 we read, And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them. With his magic arts. This word attention also is referred to in verse 6. In verse 6, the crowd gave attention to Philip. Now, in verse 10 and 11, the crowd gave attention to Simon the sorcerer. Two different messages. Which one will the crowd follow? You have one message of Philip. He's there not for himself, not for his own accolades. He's there to benefit the people there who needed to receive the Messiah. Then he had another man who was in it for himself. Whatever works is what he's going to do. The crowds in verse 6, they weren't being converted by Philip just yet. They were simply witnessing the power of God. Then we read in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. This is a very important verse. Verse 12 says that they believed what Philip was saying. And verse 12 describes what Philip was saying. What was it that they believed? They believed in God. They believed in Jesus Christ. They believed in the gospel message, and they were baptized. Then in verse 13, someone else is said to believe. But it doesn't say what he believed. Verse 13, it says, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. It says, even Simon believed. It was surprising that Simon believed. And sometimes it's hard to know when a person believes but when a person says they believe, what do you do? You baptize them. That's what happened with Simon. He said he believed. No one knows a man's heart, so they baptized him. But I think Luke, in an act of inspiration from the Holy Spirit, gave us a clue in verse 13 that it doesn't say exactly what Simon believed, simply that he believed. In other words, I think he was believing in this idea that uh, these miracles had something special going on about them. That's a far cry from actually believing in the gospel itself. And so we read in verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. What's going on? What do you mean these non-Jewish people are believing in Jesus Christ? What do you mean Philip's baptizing them? We better go check this out. This is something new. This is monumentous because no one has ever come to faith in God. No one's ever been part of the family of God without becoming a Jew first. This is new. So we better go check this out. Let's send them Peter. Why Peter? He's the head of the apostles. He's the leader of them. And let's also send them John. By the way, this is the last time John was mentioned in the Gospel of or in the Book of Acts. But let's send them John. Do y'all ever remember what John said about Samaria? It was John, along with his brother James, earlier, who had said to Jesus, "Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these Samaritans?" Do you want us to ask God the Father to blast them with judgment? Let's send John there. Because it wasn't too long ago that he had a problem with the Samaritans. And if John can be convinced, then it's real. So Peter and John, they go to Samaria. And they came down, verse 15 says, they came down and they prayed for them. That they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them because they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. What in the world is going on here? Why was the Holy Spirit delayed? I thought that when a person received the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came in their life and indwelt them, dwelt within them from there on out into all eternity. Well, that's exactly what happens, but here we have an exception. The Spirit of God was delayed. Why? It was delayed in order for Peter and John to authenticate it, in order for them to witness that this is an act of God. If they, in other words, if Peter and John, as representatives of the apostles, were not there to authenticate that these non Jews were being saved and had the Spirit of God, what could have happened by as early as Acts chapter 8, just not too many years after Jesus left this earth and went on up into heaven, what could have happened is there could have been a great schism from the very beginning. And he could have had a Jewish church and a Samaritan church. And it could have hindered the gospel from expanding even further into the Gentile community and around the world. And so God, in his wisdom, delayed the giving of the Holy Spirit to these uh, individuals who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ until Peter and John could authenticate it and can say, yes, they are part of the same family of God. What God did for us, God has done for them. And it would certainly bring back to their mind what Jesus said before he left about Acts chapter 1, verse 8, about... Uh, the gospel going out into uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria now. And they would know that it's not long before Acts chapter 10 would come, Cornelius, the first Gentile, would receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in verse 18, we read now, when Simon saw, here, here we go back to Simon the sorcerer, when Simon the sorcerer saw that the spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon wanted to purchase the ability to give the Holy Spirit to people. Now, it may sound ridiculous to you and me, but this was his mindset. I got to have this tool in my toolbox. Think about the crowds I could get for myself then. Look at all the money that I can make. Look at all the people that would look upon me and say, wow, this guy really is the greatness of God on earth. So he was willing to invest, he was willing to put his money down on this. I've got to have this tool in my toolbox. He wanted to share. He wanted to purchase a share in this new leadership movement that he saw. By the way one of the best ways to discern a person's heart is to follow his money. We know that, don't we? And you look at Simon's money and Simon wanted to use money to manipulate the Spirit of God. He thought that he could use God to increase his own fame and his own fortune. A lesson that Many preachers these day, this, this day needs to learn. It's a dangerous thing to try to use God to incre- increase your fame and your fortune. And so what happened? Verse 20. But Peter said to him, "May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter would not get along in our society very well. He's being pretty judgmental. He's being pretty mean. We're going to have to shame him. We're going to have to call him names if he lived in our society today because he's telling it like it is, isn't he? Peter said, May your money perish with you. May it perish with you. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Wow. Repent and pray that if possible the intention of your heart might be forgiven. Peter leaves it in the realm of possibility. But it's as if Simon is hanging by a very thin thread. And he's in danger of entering into an eternal judgment. Peter, I think, loves Simon enough, and I know he loved the Lord Jesus enough not to let this pass. Peter was not into finding friends and influencing people at this point. He was into proclaiming the truth of God. And if Simon went the rest of his life saying, hmm, I hate that Peter, he's all mean to me, embarrassed me in front of everybody, I don't think that really bothered Peter that much. Peter wanted Simon to know, you're on dangerous ground here. You're on thin ice. Repent and pray to the Lord that if it's even possible at this point that God might forgive you. Peter said in verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered, And said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You know what I wish verse 24 said? I wish it said Simon fell on his knees and cried out for mercy and beat his chest and asked God for forgiveness because he was so wrong and so dumb, and so misled. I don't know what ended up happening with Simon. We're not told. But I wish we were told that Simon himself did repent, and that God had mercy on him, and that Simon became a great leader in the church. But we're not told any of that. All Simon could do is say, You pray for me. You pray that these bad things don't happen. It's a far cry from crying out to God and saying, God, I've offended you in your honor, and I ask for your forgiveness. You're my king, and I'm your lowly servant. It's a far cry from that to the point where Simon simply says, Sounds like bad news. I don't want any part of it. Y'all seem to be close to God. You pray for me. Because I'm not going to. There are some lessons we can learn from Simon. Here, Simon is whatever works. My magic tricks. Hey, watch this. Boom. Watch this illusion. I can get a crowd this way. I can get people to follow me this way. Oh, look at these people over here. They seem to have something new going on, a new message. They seem to be stealing my crowd. I want in on that. Maybe I can buy my way into that. Because whatever works, right? And if the Holy Spirit works, I'm good with it. If my magic trick works, I'm good with it whatever works that kind of pragmatism we need to be aware of this idea that says whatever in your life works just go with it whatever can help you achieve your selfish goals self-centered goals just go with it we need to be careful about that because scripture says there is a way which seems right to a man but its end is the way of death and i guarantee this if you simply live for the moment you will miss out on eternity on the surface, it seems like having a philosophy of just doing whatever works would be beneficial, but I think we need to look at the larger consequences. For example, cheating on a test, hey, it might get you an A. It might, it might work for you. It's also the quickest way to fail a class. Ignoring sinful lifestyles might be the easiest way to get along with people. But I can guarantee you, If you and I ignore the sin in our society, there won't be a person getting saved. No one will get saved. Because the only people that need a Savior are sinners. And if nobody's a sinner, Jesus is no different than Buddha or atheism or anything else that comes to mind comes a time when you and i have to say it's not about just whatever works but it's about what is right And what we have to stand upon is the eternal inerrant word of god and if we're not going to stand on that then hey let's just go with whatever works but as for me and my house we will serve the lord and we will stand on the word of god and where the word of god speaks we'll speak and where the word of god is silent we'll be silent but the consequences don't matter